Listeners, start your engines. Detours episode 50, and I can think of no better way to mark that milestone episode than with Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Wait a minute, this can't be right. Oh, anyway, on this episode, John Wegley, author, actor, playwright extraordinaire, joins us to talk about Battle for the Planet of the Apes from 1973, the conclusion of the original five Planet of the Apes films, as we work our way through the nine film saga spanning five decades, nine movies, three different iterations. As always, you can find more episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CricketTable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating review wherever you're listening to this episode. Uh, for now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about 1973's Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Now, the final chapter in the incredible ape saga. There it is, our wars. This is the hell my forefathers used to speak about. This background radiation alone will give us 300 rentgens an hour. The battlefield, a dead city 12 years after the ultimate bomb has been dropped. The prize, the right to inherit what's left of the earth. The contestants, ape against man. The most unbelievable showdown ever filmed as the mutants strange, transformed men who live underground like moles battle the apes to decide who will be master and who will be slain. They're getting away. Kill them. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. Certainly not the Planet of the Apes, which is the mega series we're midway through at this point. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the fifth installment of the nine film franchise, the final uh, entry in the original run, and that's 1973's Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And I am honored to welcome to the show John Wegley. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Hello. Happy to be here. So tell people a, a little bit about who you are and everything you have going on. I know you're you're busy writing, and apparently, according to your website, you're an actor and a playwright. Tell people about all the stuff you're going on because that that sounds very exciting. Well, I'm I am a playwright. I also write short stories. Um, I try to do a little acting, mainly voiceover stuff. You can hear me as the voice of the Bad Seed in the trailer for the book The Bad Seed. Uh, I just among other things, um, got some plays coming up in Wisconsin and Texas. Uh, I have a play that's done all over the country every Christmas. I adapted a Sherlock Holmes short story that that people love doing for the holidays, so that's good. And then, yeah, I also write short stories. Um, I got uh, a couple collections out that you can find on Amazon, and yeah, it's, it's just it's been a busy week. I just got back from a steampunk convention where we. We read through a steampunk Cthulhu play that I wrote. So it's been a busy week, and now I'm doing this, and this is the most yeah. 
relaxing and fun thing this week. <laughs> no, I appreciate you making time out to do this. Uh, that all sounds really cool. Uh, just specifically the bad seed thing. Like I have a six year old, so we we're very familiar with that book and it's many spinoffs, sequels, iterations. Because now it's a it's a whole thing. So that's exciting. Yeah, uh, the, I I did the trailer for the first one, and then they had me do the trailer for um the the good, the bad, and the uh, and the spooky. I guess was the latest one, and uh, I recorded that, and then they never released the trailer. So I don't know what happened weird. with that one. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, so John is very busy. So we appreciate your time to come on and talk a little apes with us, particularly the particularly this one, which I I've often talked about on on this mega series. How when people discuss this franchise, they talk about the first one. They roll their eyes as they talk about the Tim Burton one. They talk about the Andy Circus films, and the other four are just kind of like footnotes at the end of the Wikipedia entry for the original film. And I doing this kind of rundown of them, uh, watching them for personally for the second time, because I, I did go back and watch those films like a few years ago, probably right after war uh, for the first time. Like, I think these movies are overall pretty interesting. And it's it's unfortunate that people just they got lost to time. I don't even think they're streaming anywhere. What was your introduction to the Planet of the Apes franchise? It's kind of a, it, I, I don't really know. It seems like I've always known about them. You know, I, um, up until college, I had, I know I had seen bits and pieces of them. The weirdest, the weirdest, uh, memory I have is being very young and we had two copies of the Planet of the Apes board game, which was oh, wow. based on the TV series. It wasn't based on the, uh, on the movies, I don't think. And I don't even remember what happened and I don't remember if we even played it. I don't know why we had two copies. I do remember there was a cool little cardboard cage that you could build and put the humans in. So that's the main thing I did. And then, uh, I just, I, I ended up catching the movies as I could, uh, out of order. Right. I, I saw the first one, uh, a summer in college on a small black and white TV um, you know, I watched Escape from the Planet of the Apes a few years later. It was on the Disney Channel. And for some reason, we had the Disney Channel before there was Disney+. Plus. Um, one of the weird ones was I saw Beneath the Planet of the Apes when I was staying with this family in a small town in Indiana. And they had an old, 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 like first generation VCR where the, where the top popped up and you put the oh, yeah. VHS in. Um, and they had Beneath the Planet of the Apes. They had all these weird movies. And one of the reasons was, at, at the time, some people still bartered for things in this town. And the family I lived with, their, 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 the, father, the grandfather of that family had been a doctor. And he had treated um, you know, some people in town and they couldn't pay him. So they gave him this old VCR with like all these weird movies. Like, I think Bullet was one of them. And... Beneath the Planet of the Apes and just a bunch of oddball movies that you don't understand why anybody would necessarily want to buy, but they right. they had them. Uh, so, and then I, I started catching stuff here, and I catch caught the rest of the movies here and there. Um, like for instance, in 2012, when the Mayan calendar said the world was going to end, I had an end of the world fest leading up to that fateful day when we all were destroyed, but it, mm -hmm. of course, and I included conquest of the planet of the apes in that, nice. in that festival, the, uh, the ultra violent version, uh, 
I don't know if you watched all of the extended versions as well, but but I, I actually prefer the the violent version to the uh, theatrical version. So yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just I feel like they've always been a part of my life. Uh, a friend of mine, again, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. A friend of mine did Caesar's monologue from the end of that movie as an audition piece, oh, wow, which I yeah. thought was pretty cool. Um, cool. About ten or twenty years ago, in two thousand two, I had a a play produced that was all about a lot of dialogue about talking monkeys. So there was a lot of stuff in there about the planet of the apes movies, as well as Lancelot link and chatter, who was a talking chimpanzee on TV at one point. So they've, they've always just been in the ether of my life. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my history in a, in a very big nutshell. What was, what was that like as, you know, as a child watching beneath the planet of the apes because, or any of these really, because these <clears throat> films have are overall uh, pretty dark and pretty pessimistic. They're and pretty- it's every, like there's a running, there's more than one movie where a, an ape child is murdered. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like three or four times in these nine movies. Uh, so, so how, what kind of effect did that have on you? Well, they're scary. I mean, yeah. you know, just just the image of those, like from the first movie, just the image of those gorillas on horseback with guns and wearing mm-hmm. like, sc- not, I don't think scary is the right word for their clothes, but, you know, clothes that say I might be in a biker gang or I might just right. be an ape on horseback. They, they were They were pretty scary, especially when, you know, that was cutting edge. Those were cutting edge makeup effects at the time. And it's like, you know, that ape is really talking. some of it i I, do you how do you feel about the the makeup effects uh, now like looking back do you think that there's a certain quaintness to them do you think that they how do you think that they hold up like this many decades later because i i i think it varies movie to movie but overall what are your thoughts well they definitely deteriorate uh throughout the movies uh but the, that for that first movie, they were cutting edge. I still think they look great. I still think they look believable. Um, I know you guys talked about talked about this weird scene in Beneath the Planet of the Apes, but what, some of the stuff that doesn't work is when you see them out of clothing. So, like in Beneath the Planet of the Apes, when uh, the gorilla and the orangutan are in the steam room for some reason, yeah, and they're like, well, one of them has a towel on, and the other one is quote unquote naked, and. Then they just look like cheap gorilla costumes, right? Um, but when they have clothes on, I think I think everything looks great and unique. And if I'm being honest, I actually kind of prefer those makeup effects to the makeup effects from Tim Burton's one. Um, even though you know the the Tim Burton version, the gorillas look more like gorillas, and the chimps look more like chimps, and orangutans look more like orangutans. Some of the stuff, I, I just I prefer that old fashioned 1968 look. Yeah, I think in this one you can really see that the limitations with the the snout seems to be what really gets in the way of a lot of them because you yeah. can hear that they can't really move their mouth and they're like like very limited yeah. mouth movements and yeah. no one no one really is able to sell it like Roddy McDowell uh, in these movies no. and I and I we're gonna talk more l- later about all the different you know all the different performances in in this particular film uh, but Roddy McDowell before we get to battle. Uh, battle like proper i think roddy mcdowell deserves a special shout out because this is his he's in four out of these five movies this is obviously his finale on the big screen at least with this franchise i know he did return for the live action series but what do you think he brings to this this these characters i guess and this franchise because i mean looking at watching all these movies for this podcast series i'm like 
who is most who who's like the MVP of the Planet of the Apes franchise? It's like it's I almost want to say Roddy McDowell, Andy Serkis are kind of neck and neck because of how they define those characters with the different technologies and because of the gravitas that they're each able to bring to their versions of uh, Caesar. And then, of course, obviously, Roddy McDowell also has Cornelius in his back pocket. Yeah, I think I think Roddy McDowell is phenomenal just watching him um, through watching all of these again. I rewatched a lot of them getting ready for this. And uh, I just I, he brings so much when you when you think about the movies, when you watch, even when you're watching the movies, you kind of realize that this could be kind of a thin part with mm-hmm. uh, that could be phoned in pretty easily. But no, but he's giving it his all. He's very believable. A ton of range, which honestly is seeing some of his movies before the Planet of the Apes movies. I wouldn't have thought he had. Um, I remember he's in a great, very bizarre movie called Lord Love a Duck, where he's wonderful in it. But. He doesn't show a lot of range. And then I think there's another one. Um, maybe it's called Tiger Shark, where he's plays a spoiled teenager. And again, he's fine, but not a lot of range. And and but then once you get to Planet of the Apes, I mean, he's he's all over the place. Mm-hmm. And then when you get into the sequels, he's even more all over the place. And you can see little, you know, little details that are different between between Caesar and Cornelius, which I also think is very interesting. So uh, I, I think his performance is phenomenal. Yeah, it's also pretty clear going through all these movies that the apes are infinitely more interesting than the humans. I think that's true of these five and the more recent three. Uh, yes. And certainly the Tim Burton one where we're stacking up uh, Tim Roth and Helena Bonham Carter against Mark Wahlberg yeah. um, and Estella Warren, both of whom are like eh, pretty flat in that movie, but that's, that's yeah. next episode. Uh, yeah. I think it's, it's really, it, it's pretty phenomenal what he's able to accomplish and create three or create two rounded characters in these five movies that do feel very distinct uh, because they're coming from very different places. You know, Cornelius is much calmer and intellectual Caesars raised in this environment where apes are treated like slaves. They're treated like, you know, uh, they're treated like service animals essentially and worse. And then, uh, so he has that kind of that anger that he's, that he's come up with, but at the same time, that's tempered by the, the compassion that he's witnessed with Armando, uh, played by Ricardo Montalban in escape and conquest. And I, it's interesting where this movie picks up with, his story, especially since I love where conquest ends. And you mentioned your, your friend doing that speech. It's amazing. It feels like a mic drop at the end of conquest where he's like, so cast out your vengeance tonight. We've seen the birth of the planet of the apes. And you're like, well, that's it. That's your finale. Do you think that this movie coming after that, how do you feel, feel that it builds off of where conquest leaves us off? and, And what are your overall thoughts on battle? I don't think it builds on conquest. I think it's, mm. I think a more appropriate title would be cash grab of the planet of the apes. <laughs> I'm I, so glad we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the, the first four movies all explore different themes. Some of them are similar themes like racism and civil rights and that kind of stuff, yeah. but they're all distinct movies. They all look different. They all look distinct. You, you're not going to turn on and go, I can't tell if this is beneath the planet of the apes or escape from planet of the apes, you know, there and, and conquest yeah. has that. I, I love the seventies futuristic look of what things are going to look like in 1991. Um, 
So all of that is very distinct. I don't think there's anything distinct about this, about Battle for the Planet of the Apes. I think all of the themes have been explored already that they try to explore in this. Um, and, and to better effect in the earlier movies, I watched uh, one of the documentaries on, on the Blu-ray and hearing the screenwriters talk about it. It sounded like they had good ideas. Like this movie was supposed to be the, the Cain and Abel story of the apes where the first mm-hmm. time uh, an ape kills an ape that could have been interesting, but for some reason it's just, one little piece of a much messier film. Um, yeah. They talk about the original screenplay that Paul Dane work. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he wrote, he wrote uh, the rest of the movies about how um, it picks up after conquest and it has the war that basically ends the world and gets us to this point. Um, and a lot of that sounded interesting, but none of that is in battle for the planet of the apes. It's just, it's just, you know, apes arguing with apes and mutants that aren't really that interesting and not near as interesting <laughs> as they were in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I don't think this movie builds on the previous stuff well at all. I, I did like seeing the lawgiver in person. I don't know if we had seen him before. Uh, that was kind of that, that kind of worked for me. But on the whole, I think it was just. Well, we, we got a little more gas in the tank. Let's get everything <laughs> we can out of this franchise. Yeah, it's I I obviously I love a good franchise. That's why I started this podcast. Um, but there is something to be said of the story we have has been told. So we're ending it here. We're gonna go out on top. Obviously, that's the creative side of it, not the business side of it. So there there nowadays there would have been a way where perhaps with the right creative team in place, conquest would have been the end of Caesar's story. And then it would have jumped in time to another, you know, just another story set in that world. And I think that would have been a smarter way to continue it. But as it stands, it feels, it feels like an afterthought and going into this, uh, Jay Lee Thompson directed who directed conquest and he's back for this. And based on what I've read, Nobody was happy with this thing when they were going into filming. They, the script was not completed, uh, and it's it was very haphazardly put together. It, it, essentially, the cash grab of the Planet of the Apes, as you said, the budget had been cut significantly. There was, this only cost one point seven million and made a, a you know almost nine million at the box office. So it's the least financially successful, even though it did open at number one. I think everybody was maybe riding the high of conquest, the relative high of conquest, and then saw this and were like, oh no. Um, (laughs) Do you think that the legacy of this franchise would have stood the test of time a little better had this movie not existed? Because I feel like if we had gone out on conquest, maybe it wouldn't have been stuck in dormancy for decades going into this but it's like it left a bad taste in everybody's mouth hollywood and fans alike yeah i think to a certain degree i think i i don't think battle for the planet of the apes completely negates the rest of the series but i think battle of the planet of the apes followed by a mediocre live action tv show and a mediocre animated show i think that all combined to make it Seem like okay, we've we've really run these apes into the ground. They're like, you what, what um, can we do next? The Planet of the Apes Broadway musical. They're like, any other right. medium we could try? Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, let's start. I I don't know. Yeah, I. But I. Yeah, those three. Those three final projects are, are what kind of made it 
lie dormant for 30 years. Yeah. Um, and then Tim Burton's movie didn't really help much. Uh, no, and it did not. It was, and that was so and highly anticipated. It was. I remember everybody was, we were all so excited about it, especially if you were a Planet of the Apes fan. And then it's like, oh, and I, I, I don't know. I guess that was kind of the beginning of the end for Tim Burton to a certain degree. I think so. And we were like, he was still on, you know, essentially the top of the top of the world at that point. It was just right after yeah. a couple of years after Sleepy Hollow, which did really well and which I feel like right. is generally well liked now still. Yeah. Uh, Sleepy Hollow yeah. was is one of his best. And then Yeah. Uh yeah. that's a that's a separate conversation. But yes, the 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 Tim Burton one was a huge uh misstep, misguided attempt at at capture recapturing the the allure of this franchise. I think you said that uh there's not a whole lot that sets this movie apart. I think the only thing that really sets it apart for me is it feels like a TV pilot. It, like it has the vibes of a TV movie at least. And, and I think that part of that is the, uh, the long recap. We essentially get like a 10 minute previously on Planet of the Apes at the beginning of this movie. And I also don't think the framing device helps much because it makes the whole story, like the momentum that you had going from conquest is immediately deflated because you have the lawgiver come out and be like, yeah, let me tell you, Caesar was up to some other stuff after the important stuff that we covered in the first four movies. Uh, any thoughts on like, does the framing device do this movie any favors? No, it does not. You're, you're yeah. kind of reading my mind. I rewatched it. I watched the, I watched battle for the planet of the apes like three weeks ago. And then I watched it again last night. And last night while I was watching it, I was thinking, Oh, you know, this is the template for the TV show. It all yeah. looks like the TV show. It has a lot of the same look and themes of the TV show, as I recall. So it was like, oh, that's that's all this is. And you're right. It's like Conquest ends on such a note that's, oh, where are they going to go from here? You know, this is just one uprising in one city. What else is happening all over the world? And what about... What about this war that's coming? And and what about this? And what about that? And then we start this one. And it's like, well, the war happened. And now <laughs> Caesar lives in a tree. Um, yeah. It's like, so it's like they gloss over all of the interesting stuff to get to a story that honestly, you know, we've seen most of it before. We've seen the mutants. We've seen the the struggles between the gorillas and the chimpanzees and the orangutans. We've seen it, it's it, they, they gloss over a lot of stuff that could have bared a lot of fruit to just rehash stuff that we're not that interested in anymore. Yeah. That was in my notes too, was what, what does this movie add to the series? It's just kind of like uh, the mutants are back and the gorillas and the chimpanzees aren't getting along. And uh, th there's a tenuous alliance between the apes and some of the humans. And uh, you know, you know, it's just like, bringing back every element that it can in the hopes of that it'll all connect in some way. And I don't, I just, yeah, I just really don't feel like it works. The only things that I do enjoy in this movie, uh, obviously Roddy McDowell's performance, which we talked about, Roddy McDowell, even in this movie is doing the best he can. Like he's, he's yep. committed to this character, to this world. He's, he makes it so that even though, you know, it's an actor wearing a mask, you feel for, for Caesar, after a spoiler, Cornelius, his son Cornelius, not his father Cornelius, which gets a little confusing. That was um, weird. <laughs> his, that his son Cornelius is killed. You feel that emotion uh, from Roddy McDowell. Not as much with Natalie Trundy, who's the only performer in these latter four movies and playing a mutant and then a human and then an ape. Uh, 
and I think she's, you know, fine. Like, I don't have any particular notes one way or the other with her. Uh, but Roddy McDowell, the performance of his, I think, is is one of the things that's keeping this movie kind of limping along. Yeah, agree. And I have to say, I love Claude Aikens in this movie, too, as Aldo. He I, gave me huge Dave Bautista vibes like this time. Like he yes. sounds like Dave Bautista. Yeah, he um he was very good. He has the vocal stuff right. Yeah. I believed his physicality. Um, and he was he was giving it his all. And while I've always been kind of a fan of him ever since, you know, BJ and the Bear and Sheriff Lobo, um, I never really thought he was a great actor, but but this he kind of sold me a little bit. So I, I do enjoy his performance in this as well. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do too. Actually. I think the character of Aldo who's mentioned in escape, but it's a different context. I think the, the story of the apes uprising, I think kind of uh, evolved uh, pun intended over the course of the development of these movies. And so Aldo, I think who's mentioned in escape as like the revolutionary leader that sort of got retconned into Caesar a bit. Uh, I think you could also kind of chalk that up to maybe the history of the apes got a little muddled over time, but I do also, I did notice very strongly how Aldo is sort of a, a prototypical version of Koba from Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Like there's a lot of connections yep. between Rise and Conquest and then Battle and Dawn. And I think it's really interesting because I find, you know, let's take take the Burton movie aside for a second. I, I think Battle is probably one of the weaker, if not the weakest of the remaining eight. And yet Dawn is my favorite. And there's a lot of elements in here that Matt Reeves' film is able to to capitalize on a lot more. I think part of that is because Aldo is not introduced in any of the previous films. And so you can't like that, let that arc develop at all. Um, did you note the, the sort of connections between this one and the, and Dawn of the planet of the apes? Um, I did not, but only because I have not seen the uh, Matt Reeves trilogy since they came out on Blu-ray. I didn't have time mm -hmm. to rewatch them in time for this. I'm going to try to watch yeah. them by the end of the month. So I'm, I've only seen each of them once, and while I en I remember enjoying them, and I remember certain scenes, I, I wouldn't be able, I can't really talk with any authority on them. Right. Um, I did think they were very, very good. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's, so my, my point being, there's a lot in this movie that on the page is, has potential. I think like, like you're saying, like we've been saying, I think this movie is just kind of hamstrung by a muddled narrative, uh, way, way lower production value. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just a lot of rehashed elements. There's nothing particularly new to bring to the forefront here. I did enjoy some of the, uh, some of the supporting performances. Lou Ayers as Mandemus, I thought was, was pretty fun in Agreed. his couple scenes. Uh, yep. apparently Lou Ayers was a, a, and, and very uh, adamant pacifist in real life. So it's kind of ironic yeah. casting for him to be guarding all the guns and uh, and to, you know, make sure that they're not used to get into the wrong hands. I think that was sort of fitting. Uh, his whole, like, asking all these questions to them as they were trying to get in there. I think that was really interesting. Um, that was, it was kind yeah, of, it was kind of silly, but it was also interesting. I was like, yeah, <laughs> what, what is this? What does this have to do with anything? Ah, for a right. minute, I was, for a minute I had in my notes, like, I was getting sort of uh, flashbacks to like Matrix Reloaded where I'm like, okay, they're just talking about like the themes of the movie. Like, but what is violence and what is this for? And how has this happened and things like that. And it felt sort of, I don't know, draggy a little bit, but it's also, it, you know, I, 
I also think it, it's at least something different that this franchise hasn't had before. Mandemus yeah. and Virgil. Agreed. Paul Williams is Virgil. I like Paul Williams quite a bit as well. And I'm and again, he's one of those people from from my childhood that I've always enjoyed. I mean, he yeah. he was in Smokey and the Bandit. He was in the Muppet movie. He wrote Rainbow Connection, for goodness sake. Yes, he so, did. So, um, you know, I've always been a fan of his and uh, even became a bigger fan when I first saw Phantom of the Paradise a few years ago. So, yeah, uh, Paul Williams, I, I was very pleased that he was in this as well. And then you mentioned The Lawgiver earlier. Obviously, that's John Huston. Uh, the only, I think, the only reference to the lawgiver we get before is there's like there's a statue I think in beneath uh, that bl- the right. eyes bleed towards yeah, the end of the film, re- right? To be, yeah, just to be yeah, scary, right? Which what yeah, is up with like, these movies? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it just it made no. It was just it was all an illusion. I know, I guess, to scare the apes away, but but still, it was like, why are you bleeding from the eyes? It's- <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, so McDonald apparently this is not the same McDonald. This is I think it's supposed to be his brother or something. Yeah, uh, he says he's his they, brother. They tried to get Harry Rhodes back, but they couldn't get him, or he wasn't interested, or who, who knows. Um, I, I think that the the you know I don't even have this up. I should have had this up. I think that the other actor that comes in as as um, as McDonald is fine. I think that character serves the same purpose as, as his brother would have. So. I don't think it suffers one way or another. Uh, what are your thoughts on on um, Austin Stoker as McDonald? I, I I like Austin Stoker as McDonald. I liked him in uh, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct Thirteen, so I, I've been familiar with other parts of his work. But I I do think taking the McDonald character and also the uh, Culp character, I think mm-hmm. it's one of the. I think those are some of the things that contribute to this not being a great film it's like well the last movie we had the governor but oh wait the governor's not around so here's the governor's not very interesting <laughs> assistant oh and uh oh we have mcdonald but oh well we don't have mcdonald but here's mcdonald's brother who for some yeah. reason knows everything <laughs> that mcdonald knew yeah exactly he, my brother told me where these very well hidden movies are stored so i can take you right there it's like wait what In yeah this yeah they, they, facility it's yeah. And it, all of that, you're right. All of that contributes to this movie. Just feeling like derivative and like, ah, uh, we got, you got the next best thing. It's like, sounds like, yeah, it, it does the movie no favors. And obviously you already mentioned they wanted to get Don Murray's Breck, Governor Breck back. Uh, and so instead they got Severn Darden as Culp, who's yeah. fine. I don't know. I don't yeah. really think he, he's not that compelling in this movie. He's not interesting to me at all. I, yeah. I think, I think one of the things that would have made this movie, a lot better is to get rid of all of that mutant nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's like, just let the apes figure out how they're going to move forward as a society. When you've got gorillas that want to kill everybody and kill all the humans and the chimpanzees that want to be passive. Let's, let's explore that a little bit more. Or I also, when, when I watched one of the documentaries, another idea that they had explored, but didn't follow through was that it was going to be Caesar's, you know, corrupt society, much like, you know, Julius Caesar. And that would have been yeah. in, more interesting, but uh, I think they poo pooed that because they wanted it to be more kid friendly. So. Yeah. I well, guess. they also toned down the violence a lot. Speaking yeah, of your, a lot. your, uh, your conquest violence, this is like, this is rated G. And even though there are, uh, a, there's a busload of humans that's gunned down and everything, it's done so tamely with where it doesn't it it doesn't feel 
it it feels antithetical to this franchise. Like this franchise is dark themes, it's dark imagery, it's dark ideas, and yet they're like, you can bring the kids to Planet yeah, of the Apes. And it's, I don't know. It's it's very weird because uh, yeah, the look of the movies and the and the the monkeys and the apes and everything is going to be appealing visually for the for children, right? Right. But when you watch the movies, none of them are really appropriate for children. No. I would, I can't imagine taking a child to, to the movies and go, okay, here we go. We're going to see a fun movie called Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And it's all about your world being destroyed. You know, it's like <laughs> even, even Escape from Planet of the Apes, which is probably the most kid friendly in its look and its humor and its yeah, ideas. The most playful, and, I think, throughout. Yeah. Uh, I would be, I would have been scarred as a child by that ending. <laughs> you know, it's like, come on. They gun down the baby chimpanzee. I know. They uh, just... And then, and then it's parents. Uh, well, it, you know who they think is its parents. Obviously the switch happened there, but yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. A franchise where the earth gets destroyed at the end of the movie. That's the thing that I talked about on that episode that I, I always blows my mind when I watch beneath is that there, you know, Taylor hits the button, the big white light happens, and then there's a voiceover, and then that planet was gone. It was dead. The end. Credits. Like, what? Um, yeah, and this just... movie doesn't take any of those chances that these previous four movies did. I, I, it's It plays it, by all accounts, pretty safe. And I agree with you. Like, the mutant stuff adds nothing here except to establish the mutants existed before we saw them in Beneath, which we knew that that civilization had been going on for a while. They established it beneath. Uh, and I like your idea about focusing way more on the conflict between the chimps and the gorillas because that was happening in beneath as well, but we didn't get to see it because we spent so much time with Brent uh, and the temple under the underground in beneath. And we didn't really get to that. We didn't really get to follow that through line of the gorillas and the chimpanzees and the brewing war between them. And they make mention and escape. That wasn't our war. That was the gorillas war. Uh, and I would have liked to have seen that, at least the seeds of that begin here. And uh, having Aldo as the sort of anti-Caesar, I think, you know, th there was a lot, of, a lot of room there for that to be pretty interesting. And they just dropped the ball. Yeah. Or even even the ideas that they want, thought they were exploring and wanted to explore the, the first time an ape killed an ape. That could have been yeah. very compelling and interesting. And they could have focused on that with, again, without the mutants. They didn't, you know, it could have just been between the gorillas, the orangutans and the chimpanzees. But yeah, Culp uh, is they, just they, there. Notice, notice so much of yeah. what we're saying in the main conflict of this movie doesn't involve the mutants at all. Yeah. Um, um, and I don't, I don't know why that school bus was so important. They mentioned it like four or five times before you actually see it. It's like, is yeah. the school bus running? Not yet, sir. Okay. The school bus is running. It's like, did someone think that mutants in a school bus would be, fascinating i don't understand <laughs> they're trying to appeal to kids they're like look kids yeah, a school bus exactly. like oh i know those oh i know school bus oh all those people on the school bus got killed i'm never going on the school bus again <laughs> oh look there's a little <laughs> ape kid who looks like me oh he's dead you know <laughs> right <laughs> he's going to school playing guns in war like i do at the playground oh now he just got killed oh this is uh, this is yeah. sad can i go now um yeah <laughs> let's go get ice I, cream I, he was making me depressed. Yeah. I, I did think another thing that actually I did kind of like in this movie, though, was I did like the ape school scene. I did, yeah, think I did that too. was an interesting develop. That was an interesting development to show this is how we're carrying on our society. We understand right. that reading and writing and education are important. The gorillas do not think that it's important. Um, the children, because 
at one point Cornelius says, uh, if I was, if my father was a gorilla, I'd be writing instead of writing. So it's interesting that, you know, kids are unformed and don't know yet, and they can be influenced to be more warlike, like the gorillas, or they can be mm-hmm. more like the chimps. Anyway, I, I thought that scene was really interesting, especially with the way it ended with uh, the school teacher telling Aldo no and getting into so much trouble. I like, yeah, I like, I like all of that. I like that the society that we see in this movie, Caesar's version of ape society, at least the apes, you know, the, the, the humans are sort of subservient to the apes, right? They're not equals. They're not their masters, as he says, but they're not equals either. And so he's including them peacefully. The humans are teaching the apes, obviously. Uh, I like that the apes shall never kill ape, which is a thing that occurs in the reboot movies as well. Um, and we, it sort of raises this question, well, how did we, then how did we get to the place where they're being experimented on and caged in the original film? And so this film is trying to depict the crossroads where it can go one way or it can go the other, where the future, can the future be rewritten, which is an interesting idea that they just don't do enough with, even going so far as to have Caesar as you mentioned earlier, dis, you know, uh, discover those tapes of Zira and Cornelius revealing this is what our present, this was what our version of ape society is like. And to have Caesar take that knowledge and hopefully steer in a different direction, that's all pretty interesting, sort of like Terminator 2, the future is not set kind of thing. And I, I appreciate them raising those points. I just don't think that they used it to great advantage here. No, you know what? You're just listening to you say all that. I, I completely agree. And you know what would have been absolutely fascinating to me is, you know how in, I think it's in uh, Escape, they say that the revolt was led by the first talking ape who was named Aldo. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what if they went back to the underground city and they watch those tapes and they hear that and they hear revolution was led by Aldo and then you know Aldo's the gorilla back there causing problems it's like well wait what does this mean that could have mm-hmm. been explored to a fascinating effect instead that little bit of continuity just gets glossed over and they never yes. mentioned that Aldo was the talking ape ever again but that could have led to something much more interesting than what we got it could have also uh, been an indication that in the version of the Planet of the Apes that Zero and Cornelius, Cornelius One, are from, uh, that this Aldo had taken over ape society and rewritten ape history so that he was the one that 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 changed everything. You know, it's they're they're essentially uh, the gorillas are ape Nazis essentially in this movie. Guns and power. Yep. We want yep. guns. We want power. Guns are power. And that they're you know he's taking over. Caesar's not here and and all of that. So it's very it's not a large it's not a very large leap to go to this Aldo taking over, killing Caesar, rewriting the history books, the ape history books to put himself as the hero. And I think that that you're right. That's not something they really capitalize on. I think at this point they were just like, ah, eh, good enough. Uh, they try and do a little bit of the, you know, the the parallel between apes and humans, where the mutants are uh, like Caesar's talking about how he is. He the mutants are are uh, mad and uh, malformed and and mad and whatever. And Lisa's like, well, how do you know you were trespassing on their land? And so both parties are sort of assuming the worst about each other, which again is like a commentary about bigotry and all of that. So I, I appreciate the little details, but it's, yeah, it just doesn't add up to a whole lot in the end. 
uh, I do like that McDonald has the whole, uh, the, they just joined the human race line at the end when yeah, that, that they're was turning good. against each other. Yeah. Uh, agreed. What, what did you think of the, I just, from a purely action standpoint of the battle at the end, I mean, it's called battle for the planet of the apes. Did you think right. the battle worked? Eh, not, not particularly. I like, I'm, I'm torn on the, the fight like apes thing. Cause on the one point, on the one hand, it's, it's kind of silly, but on the other hand, I like, I, I, it's, it's interesting. It makes me think about the apes embracing their primitive nature as opposed to, you know, and emulating what human society is more like. So I like that aspect of it, but it doesn't really, I mean, I feel like the, the revolution and conquest was much more interesting uh, than this is. And it's, and it's like to the point that I, it has the same director. That's why it makes me feel that it's just like everyone just felt rushed and didn't have a lot to work with. So it was just very, very, you know, uh, flying by the seat of their pants at a certain point. They're like, all right, we have these many days to finish this battle sequence. Uh, okay. Uh, that's fine. We're done. Let's move on. Next thing. Uh, so there's not, it feels very perfunctory, I guess is where I'm getting at. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, the, the, con- the violence in con- the battling conquest is much better. Um, and, and I, I also really like the, all right, now everybody fight like apes. But my, my problem is just a purely logic one of, you know, they didn't know this, this enemy was coming. When did they have time to plan? Okay. Everybody played dead and then jump up when I tell you to and come out of this weird shack that came out of nowhere. So, so that, that takes away a little bit of it for, for me, but, but on on the whole, it, it just, yeah, you could tell that the heart and soul are not in it and the, the, nothing quite clicks with the battle. What about the moment when everyone realizes that Aldo is the one that killed Cornelius and they're doing the ape shall not kill ape and he climbs the tree, which, which makes no sense for a gorilla, but it still leads to that confrontation with him and and Caesar where he, uh, you know, he basically accidentally dies. Yeah. I, I, I do like that. I like the fear that you can read on Aldo's face, even though it is through Mm -hmm. all that makeup. Um, I do like, there, there's a certain layering in the dialogue where a lot of the apes are saying, ape has killed ape, ape has mm-hmm. killed ape. And then like half of them are also going, Aldo, Aldo, Aldo. So that made for a really interesting uh, sound. It added to the cacophony of the, the, the fear in, in his eyes. So I like that a lot. And then, and then uh, it kind of loses it for me when he does go up the tree. Cause it's like a gorilla is not going to climb a tree. And <laughs> Yeah. And, and it, and you know, again, it would have been a little bit more interesting if, if, uh, Caesar did kill him, if it wasn't an accidental death. Yeah. And then what does that mean? And where did we go from here? You know, um, instead of just, oh, well, I fell out of a tree and landed on my head. I think the arc too, which is again, something that's mirrored in the, in the more recent films with that Caesar's, uh, journey and evolution is the, it's it's this Caesar's realization that maybe apes aren't as different from humans as we like to think where he's saying, Oh, the, you know, the um, McDonald's is, is saying, you know, what about us? Like, you know, what did you expect us to be? What are we supposed to be grateful for? Like we're still second class citizens in, in your world essentially. And he's like, well, do you, what you want to, you want to live the human way? The human way is violence and death. And then Virgil in all his wisdom comes in like, well, Waldo is not human. And then Caesar makes the realization, like, it's a good point. I guess we're both capable of the same violence and death. And so we're, we're you know, they, they presumably 
that realization and the events of this film steer Caesar towards creation of a world in which humans and apes can coexist to the point that in an early version of this, they had a human ape hybrid among those children uh, in the flash forward, I guess. Uh, Do you think that, how do you feel about that as a final note for Caesar, as well as the reveal that, you know, 600 years after his death, uh, humans and apes are living together, presumably in harmony, but dot, 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 but for how long question mark. I, I like it as as Caesar's final note, and um, and I, I the the again the the opening and closing scenes with the lawgiver and the children are are fine and interesting, but there we kind of know where it's leaded because we've seen Planet of the Apes and Beneath the Planet mm-hmm. of the Apes, you know. So it's not like it's not like oh that's really <laughs> interesting. Um, yeah. As for the ape-human hybrid, I think I think for me personally, as a weirdo, that would have been a wonderful thing to see. But I know there would there would be no way they would put that in a movie. Right. That would you know? It's like okay, and just so we know, there's a lot of bestiality in the future. It's like that would <laughs> be a ready. weird-looking character. There's um, only there's only so many humans out there. You have to broaden your horizons a little bit, I guess, is the message. Right. So that would have been fascinating and quite a bit disturbing. <laughs> but it but it's almost like I I almost would expect something disturbing from this franchise at this point. Exactly. It's, it would be like ha- having yeah, a like, hopeful note like this at the end, it feels out of place for Planet of the Apes. It right, feels like right. there should be another uh, there should be another like gut punch, another twist of the knife and like and then this happened. What? How, right, you know. Exactly. It could be a the final shot could be a close up on the ape human hybrid, and then that weird narrator from beneath could come in and say, "And on the third planet from the sun in a faraway galaxy, bestiality was legalized, <laughs> or something." I don't know. Yeah. Thanks for coming to the show. <laughs> right. um, yeah. Instead, it ends on another uh, statue leaking, but this time it's a Caesar statue crying. What do you What do you think that's supposed to indicate? Is the Caesar statue you know, happy that uh, my, my destiny has been fulfilled to liberate apes and have them live to as one or is the Caesar ape like, Oh shit. In a couple of years, this is all going to fall apart. Like what is that? What are we supposed to take away from uh, with that as the final image? I guess. I have no idea. I think, it <laughs> I don't think anybody knows. That, I don't think anybody knows. I think it's one of those things that they were like, well, this would be an interesting final shot. Um, and it, it yeah. And It'll be like, you know, a martyr. He'll be like a martyr in some way, but we're not quite sure what way. And it just, it's just like, let's just stick this in here and we don't have to worry about what it means. People can read into it what they want, which most of the time means it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel like that. And that I think is sort of this movie as a whole. Uh, as a whole. Like, I feel like if Conquest had been the end of this franchise, or this this version of the franchise at least, like it would have felt like a full circle. We saw where things were. We saw how they got there. The end, as opposed to this kind of, and also this other thing happened. Like it doesn't really add up to a whole lot, which is not to say that it's a, a terrible movie there. Like we said, there are things in here that are interesting that had potential that are, you know, as a completionist, as a completist for this franchise, it's worth giving a watch. Not one you're probably going to be inspired to go back and revisit. Uh, even though it's celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, um, uh, it's it's just yeah, it's it's certainly on the lower end of the Planet of the Apes totem pole. I would say. 
Yeah, 100% agree. It It's not the best Planet of the Ace movie. It's not the best movie ever made. But like I said, I watched it twice. And the second time through, I wasn't bored. You know, it, it keeps my interest. And uh, the performances by Roddy McDowell and, yeah. and Paul Williams and Claude Akins and even the little bit we get of John Huston all make it interesting for me. And, you know, also uh, both times I knew John Landis was in it. So I was frantically looking for him both times. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever saw him, but, but I've always been a big John Landis fan. I don't know if that's okay to say nowadays, but yeah, you know. who knows? John Landis. Yeah. <laughs> who knows? Um, I, know. I actually wrote him a fan letter once and he wrote back like the next week. So yeah, I was cool. happy to see he, uh, he was in it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely worth watching if you're into these movies, but if you're going to introduce someone to the planet of the apes movies, this is not the one you choose to do so with a hundred percent. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Is there anything about Battle for the Planet of the Apes that we haven't talked about that you wanted to make sure we mentioned before we start winding down? Let me see. I don't think so. I'm looking at my notes. Um, yeah, I think we've covered everything that I was I was interested in talking about. So it's not a particularly complex movie, which I think is it's part not. of the problem. Like, not even these movies are not usually not very narratively complex, but thematically they're usually they usually make you think where every single one of these movies up to this point, all of them, there's been moments where I was like, damn, they, I'm, I'm they, they got me. They brought me back. It's like uh, Al Pacino and Godfather three. Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. Like there's another idea, another, you know, concept that they bring to this franchise. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's interesting. Let's see where this goes. The only thing that I, that I had only thing that gave me that feeling in this movie was some uh, some of Roddy McDowell's performance moments, which to the point that when I watched the Tim Burton one, which I will have I, I I've already recorded as of this as of this recording, uh, I've already rewatched. I was just like, oh man, I miss Roddy. <laughs> like this is the first one without Roddy, and it, and it, you yeah. could you feel it, you feel his absence uh, pretty strongly in that movie. Uh, and it's not until Rise where we get Andy Serkis. And we're like, okay, good, an ape I can get behind, uh, not in the bestiality sense, but in the uh, and the fact that I can root for him uh, and I can want to see where his, uh, his journey takes him. Um, but yes, yeah, very much. So I, I think that's, that's definitely our kind of our takeaway. Um, it, it, what, what would you say this franchise planet of the apes? What does this contribute to cinema? What's the legacy of planet of the apes as a movie franchise? Oh, I think um, first off, it was a major at the time, leap forward in special in makeup effects. Uh, you know, the, that first movie, the makeup effects, nothing, I don't think anything had been seen like that before. Um, I also think, you know, it was, I, 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 it was one of the first, I don't think it was the first, but the first movie was one of the first that had really complex ideas and themes in a science fiction movie. It was, it was part of that same time period as 2001 and, and a few others that really explored deep themes. And I, this is something that you, you just kind of talked about. I think it was a good template for how you can do a franchise and sequels and keep the feel and the look pretty similar but explore different themes and ideas in each movie because each especially the first four movies and even the this last movie they really each movie is about something else it's all they're all about something different and mm. uh they all look different and i i think that's great and then you've you've got the steady through line of these 
these fascinating apes in different environments. And so I think, I think that's what it, what it really, I think that's what can be taken away. A, a, a sequels and franchises don't have to be a repeat of the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Like say the Revenge yeah, I, of the I, Nerds I, movies. <laughs> no, I, that's, that's a good point. And, and also it's very clear with this, with these five movies, uh, especially that they did not have a 10 year plan. Like this is what we're going to do where this, like they were kind of flying by the seat of their pants, which is why all of them except for escape have pretty definitive endings and did not have any hints for what's to come. And, but because of that, they were able to creatively find new corners of this franchise of this world to explore and like like you just said very well like very uh, mostly successfully i would say like i would recommend these first four movies pretty much without hesitation like you know if you don't like the first one maybe you won't care much for the sequels but if you enjoy that first one like write it out because it's 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 an interesting journey and i think battle's the one that i'd be like until you get to battle and then just you know it's only an hour and 80 min an hour and like 20 minutes so just you know sit, sit through it it's not you know it's it's a, it's a it's a soft period at the end of the sentence, but it, you know, it does provide, I guess, a final note to think about. Um, exactly. It's, it's just fascinating to me because that's so counterintuitive. If you're going to like, if you're going to set out to make, to make a five movie franchise, yeah. you would think you would have it all planned out and that would be the way to make it work. But like you said, it was like the first movie was like, Oh, this was a hit. Let's do a sequel. Wait, people came to the sequel. Let's do another one. They were just <laughs> making it up as they went along. Yeah. And for the for the most for the most of part, it, it all works. And it's just fascinating yeah. that it wasn't planned out. And you know, and like I said, there are the little glitches that we talked about, like when they say that Aldo was the first talking ape, or they say this happened or that happened, but they gloss over them and you just you keep going. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we started this franchise uh, this podcast with Child's Play, and that one is another one where the mythology is constantly in flux. And I think that's, you know, just par for the course with these movies. And I will I will take that most of the time over a meticulously thought out seven part story where you, you know, it's it it doesn't leave as much room for invention. Like I I I appreciate exactly. that. Um yeah. that being said, do you have any sort of ranking? I know there's are nine movies. Do you have any sort of ranking for this franchise or at least these five? I think since you haven't seen the reboot ones in a while. And the Burton one is usually towards the bottom of most people's rankings. Uh, how would you rank these five movies? I would say number one is the original Planet of the Apes, yeah. 1968. Um, and I've, I've talked about my love for the fourth one. Number two is Conquest, Planet of the Apes. Uh, number three, Escape. And then uh, number four, I would get into the, the reboot stuff. And I just put... I just. Since I, like you said, I'm not as familiar, I just put these in the order they came out. So, Dawn mm-hmm. of the Planet of the Apes, War, and Rise in that order. And then uh, number seven would be Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And that was a hard one for me to decide where to put it because I don't think it's a good movie, but I think some of the stuff in that movie is the most memorable from the franchise. You mm-hmm. know, I don't think it all coalesces well, but it's. But the first time you see it and you see those mutants controlling people's thoughts and things and all the crazy crap they do, uh, there's a lot in that that I really like. It's just not a good movie. And then uh, number eight is Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. And then at the bottom, I think, is 
our film Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, it's a pretty definitive bottom three, I think for sure. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I as far as these original five, I'm definitely the the first movie, and then I probably go Escape and then Conquest. But those are both really strong underrated movies. Uh, and then yeah, Beneath and Battle are that's definitely my my those are those those two are both uh, interesting misfires, I would say. But yeah, one, yeah. three, and four are like. I will defend as pretty good movies. Oh, all three of them. They're all, they're all very good. They're all very yeah, good. Definitely. Well, this was, that's pretty much all I have. This was so much fun, John. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, tell people where they can find you on social media. Well, I am on, I don't know if people have heard of it. It's called Facebook. I'm also what? on Twitter. And uh, those are the two that I'm on the most. I also have Instagram and I'm on TikTok. I, I don't do a lot with those, but I do every now and then. Um, but yeah, that's where they can find me. I've got stuff up at Amazon. I have a collection of short stories that came out about a year ago called Dancing in the Knee Deep Midnight. It's available on Amazon from Close to the Bone Publishing. Um, I have a collection of short plays that you have to go to the Next Stage Press website. It's called The Juggler Who Lost His Arms in a Rodeo Fire and other plays. That's available out there. And then there are some some other books and collections here and there on Amazon and a couple other places. And you can find a lot of my stories online. Perfect. John Wegley, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about Battle for the Planet of the Apes, especially since it was your bottom ape movie and you were like, yeah, I'll take it. I'll, uh, I'll jump on the battle bullet, I guess, for this movie, this, this movie franchise and help Rob out. So I appreciate that. Nope. Uh, we'll definitely bring you back on at some point, hopefully to talk about a movie you like more. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> we'll, we will keep in touch and, uh, and make that happen. But for awesome. now, thanks so much, my friend. Thank you for having me. It was great. Big thanks to author, actor, playwright John Wegley for coming on to discuss 1973's Battle for the Planet of the Apes. As we talked about in this episode, kind of a thankless task in a lot of ways. Uh, the movie itself sort of feels like the people behind it thought it was an afterthought. Uh, but I'm curious, are there any defenders out there of Battle for the Planet of the Apes? Let me know. Reach me on Twitter at Crooked Table. Same handle on Instagram via email at robert at crookedtable.com. If th there's got to be someone out there that really loves Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, neither of us did, even though we admitted there are some things in here that are worth checking out, at least the one time. Uh, but yes, let me know. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear if there is a, another argument. That's all. We're all about creating discussion over here at, at Crooked Table Productions and Franchise Detours. So. Until then, for now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. We'll be back, insert sigh here, 2001's Planet of the Apes from director Tim Burton with the next episode. So rest up, take it easy, enjoy, you know, uh, gather your bearings for as we move into that one. And uh, we'll catch you at the next stop, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED.